1: Welcome to Trust: the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dress listeners, welcome to what promises to be
0: the first in a series of profiles on Black American fashion designers. And this is the subject of a very long overdue volume edited by today's guest, Elizabeth Way, who is also long overdue as a guest on this show and i have i have literally been cajoling liz to join us for the past couple of seasons
1: yes because liz currently serves as an assistant curator at the museum at fit in new york city and was co-curator of you guessed it the 2016 2017 exhibition black fashion designers. Her new book, Black Designers in American Fashion, is an extension of that project and features a wonderful collection of essays by individual scholars in our field, including more than a few past Dressed guests. And Liz joins us today to discuss the perhaps lesser-known career of Scott Berry, but do not be surprised if some of the other contributors to this volume join us in future episodes next season. Liz, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed,
0: and I'm super excited to chat with you about Scott Berry. And one of the reasons is because I know actually so little about him. I definitely knew who he was. I knew the general kind of time period in which he worked and that, you know, he was designing in New York. But that really was only because I had worked on the Eleanor Lambert collection, and he shows up in that collection quite frequently. So that's one of the reasons why I also think that collection is so important and so special, because he's represented in there. He's was very influential and well-known in his day, and now he's kind of slipped a bit into obscurity. So I, we're going to rectify that today. <laughs>
2: first of all, April, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan. Oh, um, so it was so much fun to be on the show. And I have to agree, I did not know very much about Scott Berry. I co-curated an exhibition called Black Fashion Designers with my colleague Ariel Alaya in mm-hmm. 2016. And we included Scott Berry. We have some beautiful pieces by him in the collection. And his business partner actually contacted me after the show was up. And she, you know, just left me a voicemail and said I was his business partner. I have a lot of information about him. And I didn't have time at the moment to start researching it. But when I did my book, I knew I wanted to write on Scott Berry and I flew out to Denver, and I had a lot of great conversations with her. We've stayed in touch. Um, definitely going to talk more about her, but her name is Robbie Marks, and she really opened up this entire world, not just to Scott Berry, but to this really special time, I think, in New York fashion.
0: Yes, 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 yes. And we're going to get to all of that here in a second, but perhaps we should start at the beginning, right? Can you tell us a little bit about his early years? And I was actually surprised to learn that Scott Berry was not his birth name.
2: No, he was born at Nelson Clyde Barr. He was born in Florida in 1946, but he grew up in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting things, I think, is that his mother was a very refined dressmaker. She worked for clients in Society Hill, which is a very swanky neighborhood in Philadelphia. (laughs) So he grew up around really nice clothes. And he, in different interviews, he talks about growing up kind of under a sewing table and being indoctrinated into the Mm -hmm. business of clothes. So he was always around fashion. I'm sure his mom had great style, and he was probably just taking that in through his pores since he was a kid. Yeah. One of his sisters um, said in an interview that, you know, he was sketching dresses and things at, like, age six something else that I was really um, interested to learn about from one of his colleagues. I unfortunately talked to her after my manuscript was turned in, but her name is Ju Quan and she was basically his design room manager, business partner, design partner. And she talked about how his favorite after-school activity as a kid was going to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Mm-hmm. He loved art. He was always absorbing that. So he had some really great influences that really set him up to be a great fashion designer.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and did he study fashion in school? He did. He went to the Philadelphia College
2: of Art, um, where he wasn't really studying fashion so much as drawing. But then Mm -hmm. later, when he moved to New York, he went to the Meyer School of Fashion.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because we we see this kind of, like, pattern in a lot of designers who grew up with their parents working in the fashion trade in some way. You know, a lot of their mothers were really high-end dressmakers or perhaps, you know— their dad owned a haberdashery or something, and we see this theme repeating again and again and again. And I think it's, I think it's also one of those things is you see those people have like this kind of innate knowledge of textiles and how they work because they they see it so young growing up. And he definitely is one of those people. And we're going to talk a bit about his use of textiles as well. So he's, he went to the Meyer School of Fashion here in New York. I am not familiar with this institution. I'm
2: not familiar with them either. So this was information that I got from different interviews that mm-hmm. he had. I didn't have a lot of time to kind of dig into the Meyer School of Fashion, but I think that he probably was pretty well-versed in making clothes and sketching clothes and had a pretty great understanding of silhouette and fabric by the time he went to school. So it might have just been, you know, kind of the finishing touches yeah. or like an opportunity to network, which is so important for fashion schools.
0: Right, for sure. And and you hear that, dress listeners, there is a potential fashion history mystery question right there. What was the Meyer School of Fashion? So Barry, like, you know, so many of the people who are new to New York, he did the New York hustle thing, working multiple jobs. Um, So many people do this when they move here. I did it for sure. I've definitely had like up to four jobs at the same time (laughs) living in New York. You know, you take your work where you can get it and you cobble things together until you quote unquote make it. So would you tell us a little bit about this part of Barry's career and what he was up to in the 1960s? Absolutely. So he moved to New York in 1962. And again, he was in school.
2: And he mentions in interviews that he interned with or he apprenticed with Arson McGee, mm-hmm. who was a pretty well-established designer on 7th Avenue at that time. And so he also mentions that, you know, he was starting his business out of his apartment, you know, cutting in his living room. And that he was supporting himself with various jobs. So he doesn't go into too much detail, but as you can imagine, probably just like today, he probably interned. He probably worked as a design assistant, a studio assistant, doing really, really important jobs, but perhaps less glamorous, more (laughs) monotonous. The jobs that, like, you know, kind of lubricate the fashion industry that a lot of these young um, entry-level designers and workers get. (laughs) Paying your dues. Exactly. (laughs)
0: Well, and and initially, uh, you actually quote Barry in the book as saying that at that time, he couldn't get a job on 7th Avenue. This is the 1960s. But things definitely changed in the 1970s for Black designers. How so? So one of the things he said
2: was that he said that maybe his designs were a little too far out, and that's why he couldn't get a job. And I assume that he means a job as a designer, mm-hmm. um, because he was working kind of various other jobs. But for Black designers, I think that people like Arthur McGee, others like John Weston and Wesley Tan, they really broke open the doors for Black designers in the 1950s and 60s. And they were working at manufacturers under other labels, which was very um, common for designers at that time working in the city. So they were establishing themselves as professionals within the industry. And so they kind of laid like the first groundwork. But then designers who came up later, like Scott Barry, but also Stephen Burroughs, they had um, really directional design ideas. They were young, fresh, exciting designs. And they started off making them in their apartment, selling them to their friends mm-hmm. or giving them to their friends. Right. And one of the things that Scott Berry did was he sold on consignment at a boutique called Allen & Cole. Stephen Burroughs actually also sold at this boutique. Mm-hmm. But they sold on consignment, which means that the store let them display it, but they only got paid if the store sold it. So this is obviously very low risk for the store and very high risk for the designers, but that's how he got started. And But his clothes were great, and so they sold. And then he was able to attract department stores, which was really kind of the holy grail of retail accounts at that time.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, there's something to be said, and it's a little bit sad that these kind of higher-end local mom-and-pop boutiques, there was such a strong culture of that in the 60s and in the 1970s. Like, you know, Stephen also sold at O Boutique, which mm-hmm. was apparently— quite hip. it was like part art gallery, part, you know, whatever's hip shop. But we don't see that so much anymore these days. Absolutely. I think there's very like, you know, there's Corso Como and Dover Street Market,
2: but those are really rare and they're very, very high-end. Godberry was definitely making high-end things, but I think probably a little bit more accessible than the things available there. But those boutiques were so chic and they were where New fashion was happening mm-hmm. to the point that department stores were actually kind of modeling themselves on the boutiques and creating little boutique departments um, to kind of recreate that
0: feel. So you note that Barry was quote crucial in creating the new American look of the 1970s. And I love this so much because American fashion has some very important milestones. I would argue that the 1940s were certainly one of those milestone moments when American sportswear kind of rose to prominence during World War II. And the same sort of ethos of practicality and comfort and minimalism. This was once again heartily embraced in the fashions during the 1970s by designers like Halston, like Stephen Burroughs, like Diane von Furstenberg, and Barry. And one of the interesting things that I think connects all of these designers is their love of knit jersey. So could you talk to us a little bit about Barry's overall aesthetic and the significance of jersey in his work specifically? Absolutely. So Barry was very,
2: his aesthetic was very sophisticated and very glamorous. So even though it was very cutting edge and kind of young, it was really pared down. He was really interested in like long, clean lines, draping fabric. Young Ju Kwon told me that he wanted to be a modern dancer when he was younger and that his appreciation for the body in that way really came through in his designs. And so Jersey was a big part of that because he really wanted to show off the body. Mm -hmm. And apparently, um, WWD reported that he first started working with jersey in um, 1966. That he was cutting dresses out of his apartment um, before he really established his business. But he was experimenting with it, and as anyone who's ever sewn with jersey knows, yeah. it's a very difficult fabric.
0: <laughs> I was going to say that if you didn't,
2: <laughs> very very hard to sew. So I'm sure his um, kind of experience as a child came in handy. But he started working with this fabric, and he just. He fell in love with it. You can tell from his later designs. But he was also really inspired by Madame Gray, who was also well known for working with Jersey. And Youngju talked about how important his work with Jersey was because, in her word, he revolutionized kind of evening dressing through mm-hmm. Jersey. It was comfortable, um, it wrapped around the body. Previously, you know, if you a fancy dress was chiffon, was satin, was a heavy, kind of glamorous fabric. And he really introduced this more elegance and this ease into it. And she said that it really became apparent when actresses started wearing these dresses, Scott Berry dresses, to the Academy Awards. Kind of like the biggest, most fanciest <laughs> <made> night. <laughs> exactly. But you wouldn't have seen anyone in a Jersey dress, you know, 10 years before. Jersey was really considered more sportswear, more casual. But um, she especially really credits him with creating Jersey dresses that were elegant and formal.
0: Yeah. Oh, and you mentioned Madame Grey, that he was a big fan of Madame Gray's work. And I am such a sucker when designers are obsessed with fashion history also. Why do you think that he felt a connection with her?
2: Well, I mean, I think first of all, her work is breathtaking. Of course. It's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> it's timeless. Um, you know, she was still working in the 1970s doing really cool experimental things. You know, she's
0: sculptural. The s- patterns were so complex and fascinating. She was a genius. Yeah. And she'd been working from since the 30s, so I
2: think if you have to pick a designer to admire, she's definitely one of them. But more specifically to Barry, I think he had kind of a similarly elegant and sophisticated aesthetic. It was again really glamorous, really sensual. And I think he saw her as the gold standard that he was looking to hold himself up to when it Mm -hmm. came to working with Jersey because, again, she was a genius. And so he wasn't copying her, but I think he really admired that elegant, sensual style and the understanding of fabric that she really conveyed. And he used that as an inspiration to create something really modern and American in the 1970s. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you've ever seen a Madame Grey dress, one of her particularly, like, sculpted, like, pleated creations, you're like, where does all the extra fabric go after she's done with that? signature draping pleating technique it's it's kind of mind-boggling
2: it absolutely is i mean and talk about difficult i mean she wasn't just working with jersey she was working with like these tissue thin jerseys it's really astounding to mm-hmm. look at um,
0: and i don't think i don't think we've done an episode on her so we'll get to that in season five for sure So, Barry's venture becomes quite successful. You note that by 1976, his business was, quote, doing $3 million of business a year. And that's in 1970s dollars, so that's a significantly larger sum today. What was his business model at this time? You mentioned that he started selling to department stores at some point.
2: Yes. Yes. So Barry, like many, many designers before and after him, was not so interested or perhaps so skilled at running the business part. So that's when he partnered with Robbie Marks. So he talks about, in different interviews, for example, he talks about failing to secure a small uh, business administration loan in 1969. And he said he was in this kind of financial hard time where he was putting out a lot of money to produce his collections, but having to wait to get payment from the stores. And so he couldn't make any money. Cash flow. Exactly. Um, and this is a system that was in place, and I think perhaps is still in place in the fashion industry that makes it very hard for designers. But he met Robbie Marks at the Allen and Cole boutique. Mm-hmm. He was there selling his work. She worked there. She was also in school at FIT. Um, <laughs> she was a, um, no, I believe she was a recent graduate, but she studied merchandising and buying. And so she had a familiarity with um, kind of the way all of that worked. And she really, really loved his stuff. And so she kind of cut a deal with him. She was also a model. So he would make her clothes that she could wear on her modeling jobs for her photographs, and she would help him with the business. And she went out with him to visit buyers. And I think um, having the two of them there together, and especially her with a knowledge of the business, really kind of helped buyers be, feel more secure because mm-hmm. they loved his things. But um, they were really worried with young designers that they would put, place an order and not get the not get the merchandise. So um, Robbie really helped him get his business together. A couple years into uh, their partnership, about a year in, her husband, Stephen Marks, also joined the business. So the Marxes ran the business, and Scott Berry did all the designing, and it was really a dream team. But she also helped him get into Bloomingdale's, which was their first really, really big account. She mentions Elaine Monroe, who was the buyer there for the Place Elegance department. Mm-hmm. And um, she loved Scott Barry's things, put them in the store.
0: And that was really their first huge account and helped them on their way. He was on his way. Yeah, for sure. And also, his clothes were embraced by many notable clients. Would you care to share a few of them with our listeners who was wearing Scott Berry at this time?
2: Absolutely. Um, so their business really kind of took off. I, one of the funny things that Ravi mentioned to me was that their first shop was over a blimpy sandwich shop. <laughs> and that they had a really hard time getting buyers up there. But after a few years of great business, they were able to move on to 7th Avenue. And she said, you know, that's when we became a big boy. But they were attracting clients like Liza Minnelli and the Pointer Sisters, Ashford and Simpson, um, musicians were a really big part of kind of the celebrity contingent in New York at that time. Roberta Flack and Cheetah Rivera. Also, Nina Simone was a really um, wow. big fan and Dionne Warwick. Cicely Tyson and Faye Dunaway also wore his things. And um, Barbara Streisand wears a Scott Berry dress. We actually have the same style here at the museum at FIT in The Way We Were.
0: Oh, yay. It's on a, screen too. On screen.
2: is <laughs> um, a beautiful black and red dress. Um, Robbie notes that that was one of their most popular styles. And he also did over 100 costumes for the film of The Wiz. So he was definitely um, pretty popular. He also attracted a lot of great stylists. Like Patricia Fields would always come to the showroom. Also Eunice Johnson and Audrey Smaltz Mm -hmm. buying for the Ebony Fashion Fair.
0: Right. Which we've already done an episode on, listeners. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go back to that episode. And um,
2: Jacqueline Onassis actually saw some of his things in a department store and requested to come to the studio. And Stephen Marks talks about how they had to shut down the studio. They had to, you know, have all the security
0: in. But um, Mrs. Onassis came in and shopped. That's incredible. I mean, talk about, like, knowing that you've really, really made it at this point.
1: For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
0: Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your
1: own fashionable mysteries? So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: Despite all the success, right, one of the things that I found really interesting in your essay is despite all of this, you know, and how lauded he was, racism continued to rear its ugly head on 7th Avenue. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges that he faced having white business partners? And also, there was like, this one just horrific incident surrounding some fallout um, regarding a denim ad that he did in the 1970s. What was going on there? Robbie and Stephen
2: talked about how that they, they would get um, hate mail because they were a black and white company and that people would write in and um, make their complaints which is kind of crazy to me. And Stephen specifically mentioned this ad in the New York Times. I haven't actually been able to find the ad. So if anyone finds it, please, please contact me. I will keep an eye out for you. I'm in there all the time. (laughs) So in the ad, Barry is pictured fitting a pair of jeans. It's for a denim line that he's doing on a white model, you know, posed in the way fashion designers are posed, like they're working. And people were outraged that this black man um, was, you know, touching a white woman in this advertisement and they got hate mail. Stephen Marks, really talked about how um, disturbing that was and how, um, you know, kind of in New York, in the city, in the fashion industry, people didn't really kind of show that kind of vitriol. Of course, there were kind of more subtle ways, but that across the country, it really sparked outrage. I I, When I read that, I was like, what? (laughs) Wow. Something else that really struck me was Robbie talking about, she was very young when she partnered with Scott Berry. So not only did they face kind of um, racism on one end, but but also sexism. She said that once she was in a meeting with fabric buyers, and they're sitting in the meeting, sitting and sitting, waiting. And finally, one of them turned to her and said, when is your father coming?
0: And she was <sighs> She's just like, like, I'm part <laughs> owner of this business, sir. Thank yes. you. She ran
2: this business. And so those things kind of really astounded me that, you know, the business was different in the 70s, hopefully much, much more different than it is today. Yeah. But both of those things were things that stories that really stuck with me.
0: Yeah, for sure. You mentioned that you have a lovely collection of Barry's garments here at the museum at FIT. Would you tell us a little bit about a few of your favorites?
2: Absolutely. It was very, very lucky because my day job is working at the museum that I got access to this really beautiful archive. And in my chapter, I kind of go in depth about how they're made. So a few of my favorites, the first one was um, donated to us by Audrey Smaltz. She wore it as the commentator of the Ebony Fashion Fair in 1971, and it's this black halter neck dress with kind of a keyhole around the waistline, and it kind of um, crosses over and ties around the neck, and it has this kind of long, flowing skirt. And it's just really sensual and elegant. It's like this black jersey, and I have a picture of her in the book sitting in this director's chair announcing and kind of draped in this beautiful dress. <laughs> Lounged out. <laughs> Another one of my favorites was donated to us by Naomi Sims. She donated a few things um to our collection and it is that red and black dress the same style that Barbara Streisand wore on The Way We Were and it has this top that's three-quarter sleeves and red jersey, and it wraps around the body and ties at the waist. But then it's kind of like a mock cardigan that wraps around a black shell. And Mm -hmm. it's just really elegant. It looks really comfortable, but it's so, so beautiful. And the black and the red are just really stunning against each other.
0: And there's something like a touch 1930s about that dress to me Absolutely. What's so interesting is that it's so
2: soft. There's no structure.
0: But if you look at it, they actually have like kind of padded
2: shoulder heads in the shoulders to give it a little bit more body. So it was a really unexpected kind of touch of like, harder construction in this very soft jersey dress. Yeah, it's
0: beautiful. So speaking of favorites, as I was finishing reading your essay on Barry, I realized that perhaps, and and I can't say for certain, but perhaps one of my very favorite pieces in my closet might have been designed by him. And it's a crazy address. So it doesn't have a Scott Barry label, and it's a crazy address from the 1980s. It has like this V neckline that's very, very low, perhaps Shockingly low, like it hit, it terminates like between the breasts, if not like a little bit further down. So it's quite sexy. And then all around that edge of the neckline, it has this really stiff tool that kind of waves and sticks out. And it was actually this dress was given to me by my former mother in law in the early 2000s. It had already been in her closet for many years, and she didn't want to get rid of it because she loved it so much, but she didn't fit in it anymore. At that time, I did fit in it. I do not, for the record, fit in it anymore. It's like a size 2, 4, and I am not a size 4 anymore. But Scott Berry was designing for Crezia in Milan. Yes. What was he doing there?
2: So around the end of the 70s, about 1979, he broke his partnership with the Marxes and he decided to move to Europe. So it's not 100% clear why, because his business was really, really successful. But Ju Kwon talks about how much he loved the arts and, um, you know, dance and going to museums, and Robbie talks about how much he loved Europe, how much he loved spending time there. So perhaps he just had enough of the fashion industry Mm -hmm. in New York. And so he moved to Milan, and from 1986 to 1988, he worked for Cretsia. He was still a very talented designer, and obviously he knew knits so well, so it was such a perfect fit. And then he started working for um, Kinshido, a Japanese manufacturer. So over the years, he relaunched his namesake brand. Um, He did it in 1983, 1984, and again in 1989 with different backers. He never kind of recaptured uh, that same magic that he had in the 1970s, but he continued to work as a designer, very much able to support himself on his design work until the end of his life.
0: Yeah, which came way too soon, I might add. He was only 47 when he passed away in 1993. And, you know, when I see these dates of death of fashion designers in the late 80s, and especially in the 90s, it immediately brings to mind the AIDS crisis of the era. I'm not certain that he passed away from AIDS, but, you know, so many important creators were lost during this time. And I have this continual, perpetual kind of thought that kind of haunts me in terms of, like, American fashion history is, you know, how... How different would the American fashion industry be if we hadn't lost of all of these, you know, their individual and also collective voices as a whole from that generation? So what do you think that Barry's legacy was to American and specifically New York fashion? Well, one of the things that
2: I really like to point out about Scott Barry is I really think he represents the epitome of what was possible for Seventh Avenue design. It was ready-to-wear. It wasn't couture. It wasn't made-to-measure. You could buy it in a store, but it was really high-end. And that's the way we, we buy high-end clothes now. Mm-hmm. Some of his contemporaries who were doing other things did a lot more kind of custom work and things like that, which is beautiful and special in its own way. But I think he really represented American fashion in the 70s and what could be done. Um, So he did a lot of his manufacturing in his own—he had it all in-house— um for the most part and he trained his stitchers, his manufacturers, his machinists to handle the jersey. If you look at his dresses, there's all different kinds of stitchings, mostly machine stitching, a little bit of hand stitching, but you can almost see like the women in these factories kind of um putting these things together and really using this expertise that I think is really demanded of the type of clothes that he made. So I think that it's a really important story because because his clothes were so beautiful, because they were so influential, so many famous people wore them, people saw pictures of them. They really, that's what the 70s looked like. Yeah. But I also love this idea is that this is what New York fashion was. Yeah. And this was really what it was good at. And I think he was a huge example of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was that moment, that kind of like that moment when everything kind of started to pivot in terms of, you know, things were still definitely made here from beginning to end. And But this is that moment when everything shifts and mm-hmm. things start to go overseas. So it's kind of like that really beautiful kind of golden age of seventh avenue you know between the 1940s and the 1970s absolutely and he was definitely part of that
2: and one of my favorite things that um, I kind of came across is when I was doing black fashion designers I was actually speaking to Hamish Bowles uh, doing a little bit of press and he said to me you know he is a very knowledgeable and renowned super knowledgeable fashion history too he has a beautiful beautiful
0: collection he's been on the show Oh, great.
2: Um, I mean, he's just a wealth of knowledge. But he said to me, he was like, you know, I have pieces by Scott Berry. I knew of Scott Berry, but I didn't know that he was Black. I just knew that he made great clothes. And I think that Scott Berry would have loved that because he really is such a great American designer. And so I do hope that more attention comes to him in the future.
0: Yeah, for certain. And speaking of more attention, your book, Black Designers in American Fashion, is now out. What can our listeners expect to learn and who is represented in the in the book, both in terms of subject and also contributing authors? Well,
2: I was really, really lucky in creating this book and editing this book because I had such an amazing group of scholars to work with. And so the book covers from the 18th and 19th centuries all the way to the end of the 20th century. So I'm going to do a laundry list because I love my authors and I want to make sure I mention all of them. (laughs) So in the first sections, four sections. The first section is Anonymous Histories. And Dr. Katie Knowles and Dr. Jonathan Michael Square both have chapters that look at 18th and 19th century fashion um, creators. In the second section, which is called In the Atelier, Modice and Independent Designers, Kristen Stewart, who's at the Valentine in Richmond. She writes about Fanny Chris, who was an amazing um, dressmaker in Richmond in the 1910s. And then um, Joy Davis writes about Ruby Bailey, who is based here in um, New York City, and really combined kind of art and fashion. Kristen Owens writes about Art Smith, who is an incredible jeweler. And then in the third section, called Into the Mainstream, 7th Avenue and Beyond, Nancy Deal writes about Wesley Tan. Mm -hmm. Um, Darnell Jamal Lisby writes about Jay Jackson. And Ariel Alaya writes about Dapper Dan. So like really, really different designers, but um, really amazing stories and all kind of based in New York. And in the last section, which is where my Scott Berry chapter is, it's called The Star Designer, National and International Impact. Tanya Danielle wilson Myers writes about Stephen Burroughs, another essential um, 1970s designer.
0: And Who's then, also been on the show. Yes. I mean, he's <laughs> he's
2: absolutely amazing. It, that's
0: one of my all-time favorite interviews we've ever actually done, because he's just so wonderful and charming and just like a magical human. Yeah, he definitely seems that way. Yeah. He also like hasn't aged at all, which is uh,
2: <laughs> definitely magical.
0: Um, And Eric Darnell Pritchard
2: writes um, the last chapter on Willie Ware and Patrick Kelly Paris. So I couldn't resist um, kind of throwing in Patrick Kelly. He's not, I guess he is an American, but not an American designer since he worked in Paris. But he makes some really beautiful comparisons between Patrick Kelly and Willie Smith.
0: Yes. Liz, thank you so much. This was really, really wonderful. Everybody, please run out, grab a copy of the book. Again, it's called Black Designers in American Fashion. And it's just a really, really fun read. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great.
1: Liz, thank you for joining us today and congratulations on the release of your book, Black Designers and American Fashion. We cannot wait to see what you are up to next.
0: Okay, well, I might just have a little inside track on what she's up to next. So I'm just going to say, don't worry. Liz is going to be back in the near future because she has been working for a while now on a project that hasn't been released. And let me just tease said project by saying that it's quite scrumptious and we can't wait to tempt you with that deliciousness when it is out of the oven. (laughs) That's a little cryptic, but it is a clue. So that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider if there are black designers in your wardrobe
1: and celebrate them, if so, next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you all. So if you'd like to write to us with a question or an episode suggestion, you can do so by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. You can also follow us, of course, on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram,
0: Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress.